Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to the very first episode of Continuing Mission, our look at the ways in which fans are keeping Star Trek alive. I'm your host, Christopher Jones, and the primary focus of this show will be on the fan series, or as I prefer to call them, independent productions that tell new stories set in the Star Trek universe. Many Star Trek fans are creative professionals, actors, writers, effects designers, many of whom worked on the shows that have gray star screens for the past five decades, and the work they're now producing out of their sheer love for Star Trek is amazing. We want to share this work with you through an inside look at the most vibrant fandom Hollywood has ever known. Along the way, we may also explore other ways that Star Trek is being constantly expanded through games, art, and more. But first, we begin with Star Trek Continues. The series recently released its second episode, and as we record this, shooting has begun on the third. Without question, the Enterprise is as much a character in Star Trek as any captain, commander, or lieutenant. And if you've seen Star Trek Continues, you know just how spot-on the space scenes featuring the 1701 are. So I'm very pleased to have with me tonight the man behind those scenes, and so many of the visuals you love, from TNG through Enterprise, Academy Award-winning designer, Doug Drexler. Doug, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me tonight. Oh, hey, thank you for having me on board. I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you, and I I was watching Star Trek Continues recently, and we actually had some of the cast and crew on the Ready Room to talk about the show. And, you know, they pointed out, and of course I knew as I'm watching as well, that you had worked on the exterior shots of the Enterprise in that episode. And the Enterprise is such a character on the show and the work that you did on there, you know, really helped to bring alive the feel of that show as part of the original series. And so today I wanted to talk to you about independent productions and the work that you do on those. Yes, it's really pretty amazing, isn't it? What's going on? It's really amazing. Because of technology, people can practically go toe-to-toe with the, with the studios. If you've got a yeah. digital camera and an HD camera is like nothing to get these days, and you've got an editing suite and you've got other people who are interested. See, the thing about Star Trek is there's so many passionate people who are just so excited to get involved and want to live uh, the experience of, of making a, a Star Trek episode. Uh, and uh, many of them have been done at this point, and it really boggles the mind. I, I was involved very early. There wasn't even a YouTube when I was getting involved oh, yeah, with right. um, the fan stuff. The thing you have to remember is that I'm a fan. And I, uh, who ended up working in Hollywood and working on Star Trek for, for many years, uh, but the thing was that before that, I used to do illustrations for fanzines. You know, in the 70s, fanzines were the internet. There was no internet. Uh, and I, I, I was doing all of this stuff, but it, it was much more primitive. I mean, we didn't have computers at the time, if you can believe that. I mean, to some people, that, there oh, have always been it. computers, but... Uh, yeah. I, in a way, I feel kind of lucky to have straddled those two errors, you know, 
the, the period where there was no internet, there were no computers, right. everything you did, you it was more of a physical kind of thing. You either actually drew it or sculpted it or printed it out on paper or did eight millimeter movies and you know. Hey, I can't seem to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, you mentioned the, the, the fanzines and such. Now, I, I believe, correct, that you and a friend of yours in New York, uh, I, I think it was, was it in the 70s that you actually had a Star Trek store that you had opened up in the city? Yeah, it was the Federation Trading Post. And it's, it's kind of becoming a, uh, a legendary at this point. Um, it, there was that period of time uh, Star Trek was canceled like in 69 and the Federation mm-hmm. Trading Post I guess was 74 or something like that I guess so it you know when you're when you're only, when you're in your early 20s 4 years seems like a huge amount of time so by the time yeah. we re- opened up the Federation Trading Post it seemed like Star Trek had been off the air forever but it really wasn't that long was it <laughs> but the, no, no. Yeah, but the thing was is that there was nothing at the time. There were a couple of model kits. There was Stephen Whitfield's landmark book, The Making of Star Trek, which started careers. Uh, I mean, for me, that book was an epiphany to read it. And I was a pretty well-read kid, and I was literate. I read all the you know science fiction and read up on filmmaking as well. But if you look at The Making of Star Trek, and you imagine, I mean, knowing that there's no internet, you can't just go on Google and type in your favorite show and find sites that show them working and how things were done. Right. That, that yeah. wasn't available at all. So a book like The Making of Star Trek, you flip through that book, and I mean, like I was, I guess I was uh, 12 or 13 years old. I was reading uh, production schedules and call sheets and budgets and outlines for scripts and sketches, and it, it was, it was, it exploded in my brain, you know. All of a sudden, I had a, I had the big picture of how something like this got done. And I think that from that moment on, I always kind of moved in this direction, you know, where I ended up, even if I didn't realize what I was doing or even knew how to do it. And how did you end up actually working on the franchise? Now, I know that as a kid, I believe you told us about this when you were with us on Warp 5 last year to talk about designing the next one and all, that you had to negotiate TV time with your parents, I guess, so you could watch Star Trek. Yeah. The idea that you were like that as a kid, I mean, I, you know, it's it's amazing that as a kid, you, you love this TV show, you love this franchise, and then as an adult... You work on it, not only work on it, but you're one of the most influential designers. You designed, uh, you know, ships that people love. It, it must be <laughs> I did like it a all, dream come true. I did it all really to get re- revenge on my parents. <laughs> Is that why? <laughs> not really. I'm only kidding. But, but how, I mean, how do you go from being a fan to actually having an office there on the lot and you're actually working on this franchise? It is kind of crazy. It is kind of a Cinderella story. And uh, and the further I get away from the the genesis of, you know, my thinking I could do this sort of thing, the more amazing it really gets even to me. Uh, I mean, I lived on the East Coast. I wasn't even in Los Angeles. Um, it, I, you know, like you said, as a kid, 
I wasn't allowed to watch TV for a while, and I, but I was a big science fiction geek, and I read everything. I mean, I read all the classics. And when this show was on, I knew it had premiered, uh, but I wasn't allowed to watch it. And uh, I'd heard about it from my friends at school, and I think Star Trek was on Thursday nights at that point, and it was a Thursday night, and my mother was taking a shower, so I snuck downstairs and turned on the TV. And it was, uh, I think it was This Side of Paradise. And I watched the last half of This Side of Paradise, and that was it. It was like I had taken a shot of heroin or something. <laughs> you know, it was like I, I, I went on strike. I mean, I had to watch the show, and basically I was given an hour. Now, there's a part of me that wonders, well, maybe I was so crazy about it because it was kept from me, but you know how you want what hmm. you can't have. But it really yeah. wasn't. I always was a, a huge science fiction geek and was always sketching and drawing and doing stuff like that. It was just when I watched it, and I'd seen other shows on television. And look, I'm a Lost in Space, space fan. I enjoy It's very nostalgic for me, and I'll watch it today. Yeah. You know, I love the robot and Dr. Smith. You know, I, have I used a, to watch it growing up as well. I have a yeah. B9 robot in my office, believe it or not. If you, oh, really? If you go to my Facebook page, there's an album where you can see I've got a B9 okay. robot in, in my office, and I've got an, an Uncle Martin ship in my garage, full size. Now, are you like me, and when you sense trouble, do you yell, danger, danger? Well, doesn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Even people do. who don't know what the hell it means do it. When I was in university, our call in, I lived in this, in an international house, and there were 12 of us in the house, and, uh, but the shower was, it was like a community shower, and then you had the toilets, but if you flushed the toilets, all the hot water, actually all the cold water would go away, and you would get scorched. Yeah. And so that was our call sign in the house, and if you if someone was going to flush the toilet, they yelled "Danger, Danger, Will Robinson!" <laughs> so that anyone in the shower could move out of the way. I, you know, I'm pretty sure that's just the way it was on the Jupiter too, as well. That when someone flushed the toilet, <laughs> probably. it probably caused a pressure drop on the entire ship. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so how did you actually get the job on the show itself? Well, I mean, did- the, the thing was, I, I got into the business uh, because of makeup. Um, I discovered makeup when I was about 24 years old, I guess. And at that time, like I said, there was no internet. So there were a few magazines that had information on uh, how stuff was done. And one of them was Cine Fantastique. But the one that really was hugely uh, instrumental in me you know, getting going was uh, Cinemagic, which later became a Fangoria magazine. But it used to be, a, okay. uh, it used to be a pretty slick fanzine, uh, and there were articles in there on uh, how to do all kinds of stuff. And it was Halloween, and I got invited to a uh, Halloween party, and I remembered that one of the uh, articles in the Cinemagic was how to do foam latex, how to sculpt an appliance, how to make a mold, that type of thing. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm doing that, and. I'd never sculpted before, and I first made the molds, did a life cast uh, of a friend who I was going to do a Planet of the Apes makeup. I mean, that's what everybody did then, was do Planet of the Apes, because that uh-huh. that movie was so influential. I mean, it just killed everybody's brain, you know. people. How, how many people who were makeup artists were influenced by the John Chambers stuff? I got into makeup. And things took off for me. I, uh, you know, met a, a, a wonderful guy, uh, makeup artist, who we became partners, John Caglione, and we I, we worked together for like twelve or thirteen years, and had tons of fun. And we ended up 
getting against all odds Dick Tracy. Uh, Warren Beatty is not your average bear, and he wanted somebody other than, uh, you know, the go-to guys that everybody went to, and we were different. So we ended up getting the job. Plus, we knew a few people who were on Dick Tracy. Uh, we worked together earlier, so we ended up getting that job. That brought us to Los Angeles. Once we got out here because of Dick Tracy, we were able to get into the union. Once we were in the union, I knew that when, start, when we were done with Tracy, if I wanted to, I could conceivably work on Star Trek. Up until then, I couldn't because there's a New York union and there's, there's a West Coast and an East Coast union. And you just can't come from New York. and you'd need a, They'd have to either give you a special permit or you'd have to take your union test for the West Coast, which they made Dick Smith do. On um, I think it was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. They made one of the greatest makeup artists who ever lived take his West Coast test. But, okay, so... Follow Dick, the rules. Yeah. So, uh, Dick Tracy ended and I knew that you know third season Star Trek was about to start up right across the town there and uh, that's I made a beeline there and literally begged Mike Westmore to let me work on the show and that was it I was on and I worked doing makeup but at this point you're begging Mike Westmore yeah, 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 as yeah. Someone with please, an please, Oscar award please, in your hand. Please, 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 please let pretty, me. Please, please. He, he said, what do you <laughs> want to do television for? He said, yeah, you, you yeah. know, you, you could do features. I, you know, I, everybody thinks that's, I mean, listen, even Mike ended up doing mostly television, although he did, you know, consult on features and do features here and there. But I love television. I prefer TV. I'd rather work on television than a movie. I did movies for like, you know, 12, 13 years. And I, I did that. I don't want to do it. Television is much warmer. You make more friends that you stay with for long periods of time. Movies are like nomadic. And, and honestly, I, to be truthful, I found you're more likely to get your back stabbed on a movie than you are on a TV show because you'll get people who they know they're probably never going to see you again. You know, So right. if they have to throw you under the bus to save themselves, they will. On television, not that that doesn't happen, but you end up getting a group of people who you know what it's like to work somewhere and you're familiar with everybody and it's just a much, much, that's why Star Trek was like one giant family. And, and what do I miss? Well, I miss Star Trek. I miss working on Star Trek. Um, but what I really miss is, you know, our group, you know, Mike, Denise Okuda, Herman, Zimmerman, you know, John Eves. Uh, you know, all, all the people that we worked with, uh, physical effects, it was a well-oiled machine. After that many years, it's, it's uh, th uh, that I really miss, and I'm, and I'm more than that. On the other hand, me, Star Trek closing down when it did was a good thing for me because I ended up going on to Battlestar Galactica for Gary Hutzel. And I've been right. with Gary ever since then. And we've won Emmy Awards, and we've been nominated many times, and get to do incredible, incredible stuff every day. And so, you know, it's kind of a funny feeling. I, I feel bad about the show ending. And on the other hand, I see the good things that happened to me because it did end. Well, let me ask you, you talk about TV and film. And, of course, you worked on Star Trek all the way through and through DS9 and through Enterprise. And now... Let's talk about Star Trek Continues because it's the most recent thing that you've done related to Star Trek on on screen, yeah. anyway. And but because now these are episodes like a TV show, 
but because it's an independent production, you know, they're not churning them out every week like CBS Paramount was in the days of Star Trek on television. How how is that compared to working on a TV series versus a film? Is it somewhere in the middle because you know you know these people and you're going to work with them again down the road, but it's not that same uh, you know, daily activity like you had before? Well, it's not the same stress level. You know, the thing is that, one, you're not getting paid, okay? You're just doing it because you want to. There's like no profit happening here. You do it because right. you're passionate about it. I'm passionate about it. I always have been. Can I explain it? I'm not sure. I don't know why. I, I always feel compelled to be involved with this this thing. I feel like a part of the Roddenberry family. And I feel like it's partly my job to protect Star Trek. I know Michael Kuda feels the mm-hmm. same way. Uh, that that Star Trek is, yes, it, you're right, it belongs to Paramount Pictures, but there's actually, it's hard to describe, there's a sense of ownership, and not that we have any ownership of the show, but it, it goes beyond legal. You know what I mean? It goes beyond a contract or getting paid or anything like that. Our DNA is attuned to this project for some crazy reason. Right. And it's like protecting a child, right? You you feel like you've, in a sense, it's it's very true for you because you worked on Star Trek from the TNG days, and you know the vast majority of Star Trek's content came after that point. It is like you you and everyone else have raised this this franchise, this child, uh, creatively, and so you you feel that need to well continue to nurture and protect that. You know, part of what was wonderful about Star Trek is that. Um, while it was a network-type show, it was known for kind of bucking the system that Star Trek would work at doing stuff that might be controversial. They might do stories that some people might not like or that go against uh, the beliefs of certain areas of the country. And it, it, Star Trek was known for making statements. And that's one of the things I loved about Star Trek, and I was always proud that Star Trek, a science fiction show, which was looked down upon in the 60s, would make statements that are still reverberating today. I mean, I think that Star Trek... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at Star, the original series now, and you see a multinational, multiracial crew, okay? Now, today, that doesn't seem like anything. We This is... Believe me, in 1965, 66, that was so unusual. I mean, Star Trek wasn't the first one. I Spy with Bill Cosby and Robert Culp was before Star Trek. And I think that Bill Cosby was pretty much was, was one of the first major black stars on a television show, a feature player. Um, uh-huh. But for some parts of the country seeing all of those different races on the bridge was shocking believe it or not I think back on it I mean people you know what we really have come a long way because there was a lot of you know foolishness going on back then I knew it that's why one of the reasons Star Trek was so appealing to me there was nothing the show bucked racism Um, they bucked Vietnam. They did shows that spoke out against Vietnam at a time where, you know, the, the, the census probably didn't even realize it. You know, private little war. 
Yeah, probably not. That's why it got on, right? Yeah. The sensors um, just kind of went over their heads. It would go over their heads or they just don't look that close. You know, mm-hmm. when you got a lot of stuff to do or maybe you're lazy that day. I don't know. They got away with well, a lot. Well, they're too concerned about something like if, if, if a white and black person are going to kiss on the screen, right? They're more worried about that than commentary on a bigger yeah. issue. On the other hand, though, I have to say that Mark Cushman's books that are coming out now, Mark has done something so unbelievable. I mean, he's done a document on the production of a TV show like I have never seen in my life. And Mm -hmm. the things that impressed me the most when I was reading the first one was that NBC was not as dumb (laughs) as as Gene Roddenberry made them out to be. Uh, Right. That, that, um, was it Ben Robinson? It was the representative of NBC who would get all the scripts and send in notes. And there's a lot of his notes, which you never saw in the making of Star Trek. And he made a lot of good sense. And he, and that NBC really would bite the bullet and know that they were making, you know, a statement. The thing that I learned about Gene is that he knew how to create a sense of, in the fans, people, of ownership and love, you know, people love underdogs and people love to see somebody bucking the system. So when Gene would tell stories about how I stood up because the network thinks the schmucks like you in the television audience are too stupid, you know, and the audience laughs, um, that really wasn't that true. But he knew that by saying that, it kind of made him, you know, kind of heroic in a way. And it captured Mm -hmm. people's imaginations. It was a period of rebellion. I mean, the 60s stuff that was going on then this you know a college students who were part of demonstrations against vietnam war and stuff like that when gene would talk yeah. that way he sounded like you know someone who was i mean those were gene's ideals but if he could make it look like he was the underdog and he was being taken advantage of the network just didn't understand him it built it built him it built him up um it, it worked amazingly but i have to say that through Cushman's books, I've learned that NBC was a lot smarter and a lot more supportive uh, than we were originally led to believe. The most recent episode of Star Trek Continues, Lolani, which you worked on, it it carries that torch. It really does uh, deliver a message about women's rights, about freedoms and slavery, with the story about the Orion slave girl, Lolani. And you did the work on that, too. How did you come to actually be involved with this particular project as Star Trek continues? Well, I mean, um, in Star Trek circles, I'm, pr- I'm fairly well-known. And, uh, and, and Vic... I think you're extremely well-known. You're <laughs> very, very modest. I'm kind of, people kind of know who I am. <laughs> well, okay, if you say so. I'm extremely well-known, by the way, everyone. <laughs> but, but, you see, the thing was that Vic knew who I was. Vic Montana. Yeah. And um, he, uh, I think Jack Marshall was working with him. Now, Jack is one of the founders of uh, New Voyages. I'm one of the founders of New mm-hmm. Voyages. James Cawley is one of the founders of New Voyages. And then James had his group of people up there in upstate New York that uh, got things done for him. But this is a whole other story, and it's a really interesting one. But the, the thing is that um, uh, Vic... Uh, contacted me through Jack, and we got together. Oh no! And you know what? I think that 
I think I had met Vic once before uh, through Alec Peters. But uh, the thing was that I got together with Vic. He wanted me to do visual effects for the show. He knew that I, you know, I love the Enterprise, and you know, I, it's one of my girlfriends. What can I say? And um, <laughs> the, the thing was that at that point, I had vowed that I wasn't going to do any more fan stuff because they can be very difficult sometimes, and I work almost all the time as it is. So I don't have a lot of time to, to, to put up with, you know, rough seas. And rough seas can happen on any production, and they do in real life, too. I mean, fan films aren't that different from the real thing, except that there are real, real deadlines. You get your, I mean, you have to. <laughs> I can't even, sometimes we'll talk about what it's like to work on a, on a TV show. Uh, it's exciting and thrilling and, you know, scare the pants off you, you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh you know, Vic came over and he wanted me to do it. And I said, you know, and, uh, I, 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 I said I was never going to do that again. And I'm not doing it anymore. And I haven't done it in a while. And, and, uh, and he was, Vic was always very cordial about it and, and understood and everything like that. But he never would stop asking. And, and the thing was that, uh, and I think Jack came up with this, about um, doing a sequence in the teaser for the first one, The Pilgrims of Eternity, uh, the one with uh, Mike Forrest playing Apollo. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, where I would be Paladin from Have Gun Will Travel, which okay. is another show that's very dear to my heart, and it's tied directly to Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry learned to write on Have Gun Will Travel. He wrote 24 episodes of it, and you could take Paladin, the hero, who was a guy. From, he was San Francisco based, which is why Starfleet is in San Francisco, and. He was kind of a mercenary. He was a hired gun. He would go out. Someone would pay his fee, and he would go out and he'd solve problems. And he was, anyway. Vic knew. I, I have a paladin outfit. I mean, I've got the holster yeah. with the silver chest piece on it, and I've got, you know, the single action army Colt. That's a six inch single action army Colt, and I've got a shirt I made from one of Richard Boone's shirts that I got a hold of. I got the whole thing. I got the hat made by the same people who made the original hat. If you're, if you're on my Facebook page, you'll see it. Please. If, yeah, I've seen these photos. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's yeah. listening, if you want to go, just friend me. And I've got a ton of stuff in the album section. Um, so he offered, he said, Jack took a segment of one of the Have Gun Will Travels where, you know, Paladin says, uh, I'd like you to take a look at this gun. He gives this little thing about this gun, how it's handcrafted and blah, blah, blah. And I, that was clever, you know, and I was really, I was like, yeah, 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 I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that. <laughs> So we agreed I'd do that, but I said, but I'm not doing any visual effects. If you think this is going to get me to do visual <laughs> effects, you've got another thing coming. And, you know, it's like, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> so we shot the thing, and um, he came over to show it to me, and it turned out really great. We did some looping in my uh, – mm -hmm. Vic is, you know, he's a, he's a voice guy in anime as well. He's very successful. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to a convention once. He does once. Pokemon and stuff too, Oh, right? he does all kinds of stuff. I went to a convention yeah. once where he was on stage having nothing to do with Star Trek, and the place was full. It was a 4,000-seat capacity, you know? So he really, he is, a, the guy's a pro. I mean, I watched him on, on set, and he's got a good, he knows how to direct actors. Anyway, uh, the thing turned out real good, but, and and also, of course, I was very interested in it because Mike Forrest, Apollo, is in it. He's a dear friend of mine, uh, and 
I thought it was a great idea to have him back. And Mike is a tremendous actor. I mean, what a voice. And so uh, I watched the rough cut that he had. And I said, holy crap. I go, who's your, who's your DP? Holy, you know, I mean, it's like, it's and, and Vic was terrific as Kirk. I mean, I could oh, split my yeah. eyes and it was William Shatner. Uh, I had well, to I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sitting here watching Star Trek Continues and I had them playing a couple of weeks ago because we were having them on the show. And because I've, I've, at that moment, I'm not like staring at it continuously. I have a display right here on my desktop. And like you say, there are moments where I don't even think about that it's Vic. It's like it's William Shatner. Yeah. And he's not doing a caricature of Shatner. No. It's just, he's just capturing the spirit of who Kirk is. Yes. And that's the difference between someone who is just playing actor and someone who really has some chops. Right, right. And, and the, and the look and feel of the show too is so spot on TOS that I almost felt like, well, I did feel like, I shouldn't even say almost, I did feel like I'm watching an episode of the original series Absolutely. that I, I, I've only seen once before. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, start, it was startling when I watched it. Now, Matt Busey does the DP work and he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he totally understands the camera and he's uh, technically a very good guy with the camera and the lighting and the types of camera moves. You know, for me, showing how clever you are by using a steady cam sort of rig while shooting a show that's supposed to be a Star Trek episode from the 60s, it's going to hurt you. The minute you do that type of thing, it just doesn't look like Star Trek anymore. Uh, and the same goes for when I did the visual effects. All the shots. You know, I had done some new Voyages stuff in my spare time. And I know how seductive it is to take, try to make it do things it didn't do before. I mean, I barrel roll the Enterprise, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I really love a couple of those. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen much of the new voyages we did um, uh, in harm's way, which I still think is, the, is such a fun episode. I just love it. It's really fun. You know, there's a part of me that says, wow, it'd be fun to redo it, you know, get the gang back together and redo that one and do it, you know, sleeker. Because it was, you know, it was rough, but that was a long time ago. We didn't even distribute it. There was no YouTube. I told you, you had to go to like a site to right. download it. Yeah. And, and uh, we also did one called Center Seat, which I really loved. And that was the first one I actually put my real name on uh, mm -hmm. because I thought it was that good. But um, uh, when I did uh, Star Trek Continues, I told Vic, I said, look, I, I will do this because I'm so excited about how it looks. I'm only doing the ship shots, although I have gotten involved with other shots like the hangar deck sequence in Lalani. Uh, was, uh -huh. uh, I totally went off. Uh, Dan Dodd started it and, and uh, I took it and uh, lit it. And, you know, and it turned out beautiful. I mean, I look at it and I'm critical of my own work and I go, wow, that looks like the old show. <laughs> but that, for me, that's what it's all about now. To, to not try to do what they could have done or not try to fix the things that didn't work or, you know what I mean? Right. I don't want to do it with, with very little grain. I want lots of grain on the ship, you know? I want, yeah. I'm going to have less grain and, there's, and it's going to be cleaner and sharper looking, but I want to do it just the way they did. I, when I set out to set up shots where it photographed the same way, 
as the 11 foot model, I found out from shooting it for years, you know, uh, because I always had a model of the Enterprise, that I it never quite looked the same. Well, surprise, I mean, one of the things that just isn't obvious, and it took me years to even figure out, it wasn't until I was working on, I think we were doing first or second season remaster on TNG, and I was there for one of the years. It really didn't need a lot of CG because Paramount saved all the original elements, which was absolutely amazing. But there were a couple where I had to set up a CG ship to replace a shot that was missing or they couldn't find. They usually found it after I got the shot done. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And uh, I would go to line up the Enterprise DCG model, and I just couldn't. Well, first I talked to Gary, Gary Hutzel, who shot a lot of those shows, you know, shot the ship, who I work with now. Mm-hmm. And I said, Gary, what lenses did you use? And Gary told me what lenses he used. I go back, I use those lenses. Oh, that's a great resource that oh, you could ask. Yeah. Them now. yeah. I went and set up the lenses and the ship just did not look the same at all. I'm like, what the hell am I missing here? And it like hit me like a ton mm. of bricks. And it was the, it was the centerpiece of how I would approach all the shots for Star Trek continues. And that is everybody who does a Star Trek show in CG, the first thing they do is make the ship 947 feet long if it's the TOS Enterprise. If it's a TNG Enterprise, they make their model 2,000 feet long. Well, there's no way it's going to look the same because the ship that they shot on television wasn't 2,000 feet long. It was 11 feet long. And I'm like, holy shit, how come that never, oh my God, that never occurred to me. And I would run and try it. i take my ship and I'd make it 11 feet long and all of a sudden, bingo, snapped right uh-huh. in. Holy yeah. cow, that was the secret all along. Well, of course, that's only a part of the secret. I mean, the thing is, on Star Trek Continues, okay, I now had the plan to shoot an 11-foot CG model and not a 1,000-foot CG model. The other thing was I would base all shots on existing shots that they already had. It would start off looking like an original shot. But then I could change the camera a little bit towards the end, and people's brains would go, wow, a new shot. Right. The other thing was the lighting. Everybody lights the ships closer to reality, you know, like a single star with some fill and maybe a little bit of bounce from a planet, you know. Uh-huh. Well, that doesn't look like the show either. Um, I, I took my ship. I set it up. I had the – I figured out what the lenses were for TOS – by working with an 11-foot ship and changing the lenses until the foreshortening on the ship resembled what they had on the original show. And then I took a lot of time looking at the pictures of Howard Anderson uh, and uh, you know Westheimer and saying, what was their lighting setup? Because you know that on the original show, the Enterprise was always lit evenly and had multiple shadows on it. Uh, And that was because they needed shots to be able to be used in any situation because they couldn't shoot new shots for every situation. A shot from episode 3 needed to be reused in episode 12 and still fit in. You know, it couldn't go from stark lighting to, you know, very dark lighting. They didn't have that kind of money. So they, 
over the three years they had developed you know, a resource of stock footage, and then where they could afford it, they would get a new shot if it was absolutely necessary to help tell a story, and only then. So I wanted to approach the show, and, and Vic absolutely did as well. We spoke a lot about it. He's a true fan, and he really understands the original show, obviously. So the thing was to shoot everything exactly as if we were going into real fourth season production. Right. If I was going to do shots... And this is how I, exactly how I explain it to Vic. If I had Bob Justman sitting in the room here with us right now, he's going to yeah. say, do whatever you want, but those shots must fit into what we already have. So my shots had to fit flawlessly with the original series shots. Yeah, and they, and they really look like that. And when we had, uh, we had Chuck White, we had Chuck Huber, we had Larry Nemechik, and we had... We had um, Todd Habercorn on Ready Room recently to talk about this. And one thing that Chris White was talking about was actually the way they all described Star Trek Continues is that it's a museum quality reproduction of the original series, which I took as being what you're describing here, that creatively, like you said, you're resisting that urge to make it more modern and you're making sure that it does feel, as you just said, like it's the fourth season of the original series yeah. and it's the same production crew and production values. Yeah. I mean, the thing that bothered me about the remastered shots is, for instance, they would fix stuff. And that would always yeah. be the first reaction to anybody and, uh, uh, you know, who's doing it, especially if you don't know the show as well as, say, someone like me, um, who uh, loves the fact that the Enterprise sometimes fly, crab flies, you know, catty corner. Uh, uh -huh. It doesn't fly exactly on its center line. It kind of slides a little bit. To yeah. me, that's part of the charm of the way the ship flew. And to take that out is to take away from that charm. And it also subliminally says that you think what they did was crap. <laughs> you know? Hey, yeah, listen, I the, th the, the as... thing is, now let me say, I don't mean to you know, run over you here, but the thing I want to say is that anybody who's listening who worked on the remasters, I'm not criticizing you guys know that I understand that you get your marching orders from all over the place. And maybe the studio doesn't want that. They'll say, I'm sorry, but it looks like it's sliding. I don't want you to do that. And you can't do right. it. You know? So just, I have to say that. Okay. Well, I think all of us as creatives have that experience. You know, Now, I don't do visual effects, but I am a professional designer. And I will design something as well. And like you just said, you know, the client will come back and say, I don't want it to look like that. I don't want this element here. And and you feel like it should be, but at the end of the day, well, <laughs> they're calling the shots. The, and so you have to make that change. The beauty of um, working on Star Trek Continues <laughs> is that, okay, number one, I'm not getting paid, okay? <laughs> right. I'm not getting paid. Well, what I'm getting for payment is doing it the way I want. And and yeah. And I make that clear. I made that clear in the beginning. Uh, and Vic was always amenable to that. He was, uh, I, you know, it's however I feel it should be, that's the way it's going to be. And so under those conditions, I'm okay to work. I'm more than okay to work on Star Trek Continues. I'm very proud of Star Trek Continues. I think it's absolutely amazing. I feel like I'm getting, it's so much like the original show. It just blows me away. I mean, I'm, it's yeah, crazy, man, crazy. It really, really is. Well, let's talk about one other thing that's not related to the screen, 
Now, many people have seen, they're familiar with the beautiful starships that you do for the Ships of the Line calendar. And kind of related to that kind of work, The Fall, the big book series, The Fall, came out last autumn. And I, I won't give away when it happens in the literature, but at some point, for those who haven't read all the books... The Terak Nor Deep Space Nine station from the television series is destroyed, and a new station is built by Starfleet. And that station, we see it for the first time on the cover of David R. George III's novel Revelation and Dust. And we had David on Literary Treks a while back to talk about that book, and he talked quite a bit about the process of creating this new station and working with you on the visual design as well. And as a as just a diehard Niner myself, I really wanted to hear from you how you approached designing that station. And because you worked on Deep Space Nine, did you have a list of things about the Terok Nor design that you had wanted to tackle from a Starfleet perspective for a long time? What was your approach on this? Well, I mean, I had always, I had always, you know, wondered about, hmm, what if Starfleet? Um, restored this place. Uh, I never looked at it from the point of view of, you know, that it would be destroyed and have to be replaced. But what if, what would a Starfleet version? And, and actually the thing was that I think in um, uh, Beyond the Stars, the one where uh, Cisco plays a 1950 science fiction writer, uh-huh. uh, yeah, there's a the version story. of DS9 on the cover that Jim Vanover did of a book that is uh, DS9 1950s yes. Air Force kind of yeah. style. And, yeah, it's really cool. And 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 we always wonder now, what would Starfleet, you know, do with this? There was a point where DS9 looked a lot more like a Starfleet station than a Cardassian station. Um, when Rick first, now Rick did the original design with Herman Zimmerman, uh, and Rick Berman, um, and and uh, at that point it had kind of a smooth surface and was kind of Starfleetish because Rick is a very Starfleet kind of guy. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Two set designers and with input from everybody in in the department uh, took elements of the interior sets that were being designed and applied them to the exterior of Deep Space Nine, and then it started to take on a Cardassian look. But uh, but the idea of it, you know, if Starfleet built this, what would it look like? Now the thing is that if Starfleet were to really rebuild it no other reason than to have a space station, it probably wouldn't look the way it ended up looking, which is a lot, in many ways, like the Deep Space Nine. But, yeah, it's definitely inspired by the original look of yeah, the, I mean, the Cardassian station. What's going on here, it's, it's, the, the station was destroyed, and it was a catastrophe. And so the new station is, celebrates the old station. It looks the way it does because we don't want to forget the old station that met such an awful fate. And so, in right. a way, it's a memorial to the original Deep Space Nine. Now, in the days of in the days of Star Trek, Roddenberry used to talk about something he called technology unchained. And what that means is that something doesn't have to look the way it does because it has to follow the rules of form follows function. Form follows function is important, but not as important as it used to be. You could go for beauty and design. A Starfleet vessel, Starship, has to look a certain way in its configuration because it affects the warp bubble around the ship. But if you're going to do the station, you could you could design it more like architecturally, like a building on Earth, and give it a certain right. look. 
So we knew that we wanted, and and this was working with the writer um, and the editors, um, that first, well, one thing I should say now is that they had a very strong idea right up front what they wanted it to look like. They didn't know how to express it because they're not designers and illustrators. But they could say, well, we want to have the arms. So we knew that the basic configuration, what it was going to look like. And we came to an agreement on a basic configuration that reflected Deep Space Nine and that they liked and that we could live with as well. Um, one thing that is important to remember is that this design wasn't done like you would do it on a TV show where you might spend months going through different designs. This was done in a matter of weeks. Uh, now, I'm, I'm very busy on Defiance, and uh, I really didn't have time to... Basically, I, I supervised it and organized it. I said, okay, I got a Starfleet space, space station here. I want it to feel like Starfleet. Who can I get who I love their work? They are Starfleet. They are Starfleet. Uh-huh. And that guy is Andy Probert. Now I love working mm-hmm. with Andy, and he's I, he's a genius. I mean, I'm so floored by the work that he does. And so I brought in Andy, and so Andy got all the notes and all the rough sketches, and had questions, and and he went about doing sketches, which you could see on my Facebook page. I actually have a section mm-hmm. on the, the new DS9 space stage has all of Andy's sketches that he did, and so with those sketches and the writer and the editors certain elements were approved. And from that point, uh, Andy made a very rough CG mock-up so the proportions could be seen from different angles. Once that was approved, I have a crazy friend of mine named Deg Douglas Graves. Some of you, I'm sure, already know who he is. He's a terrific 3D modeler. It's a funny thing. Uh, Deg, who's been with us for years now, um, I met him because of the Drex Files, the website that I had on the Internet. Oh yeah. I mean, I've met yeah, a lot yeah. of people because of the internet, and I would I saw Deg's work, and I was like, "Whoa, who is this guy?" And it turned out not only was he really talented and doing work that I really liked, but he was crazy, He's funny as hell. I mean, we laugh all the time, and he ended up working with us, and he's worked with us through Battlestar Galactica, Blood and Chrome, and Caprica, and into the Defiance. So Deg and I are, are buddies, and uh, I took all, all of Andy's stuff. Handed him over to Dag. Dig did models, and to me, I'd make suggestions, and that's how it came to be. Uh, usually, I lay out the book covers. I, uh, as a matter of fact, I always lay out the book covers. I've been lucky to have a really wonderful relationship with Simon and Schuster, and they give me a lot of book covers to do. I've been very lucky. Yeah, they're there. very beautiful. Sometimes it's crazy, and I'll get a call on Thursday and say, "Oh God, we really need something tomorrow." <laughs> you know, and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes some really good stuff comes out of being. You know, having to do something overnight, but th- but that's how the design uh, came to be. It's very collaborative. You know, um, it was fun watching Andy do Starfleet. Did you have a feeling? One thing that David talked about was that he originally. A lot of people often ask, "Why does Starfleet put the bridge of the starship, the command center, right on the top of the saucer?" Where it's so vulnerable to attack. And David talked about he wanted to bury the command center in the middle of the station and call it the core. 
But during the process of actually, you know, talking to to you and others about the design, it ended up being moved up to the top. I believe it's called the hub now. Yeah, I think it's... Did you have a strong feeling about that? Well, I mean, I really think that it's more important. I'm all for scientific accuracy and and tactical, you know, uh, accuracy and logic. But there is more to be gained in excitement by putting the bridge and putting the command center in a place where you could say, they're in there. Yeah. You know, there was always a, I love Galactica, but there was always a disconnect because they never told you where the CIC was. It's buried deep within the mm-hmm. ship, but you never got that sense of mm-hmm. uh, connection to where it was. I, I think it really helped to, to have the bridge up on top like that. It gives What it gives the ship is a sense of scale, a sense of human scale. It's just a human connection, which I think really, really worked to the ship's advantage. The other thing is that it's very, very 21st century thinking to think, oh, we've got to bury this thing deep inside the ship to protect it. I think in that that day and age, burying it in the ship ain't going to help you. You know, you're going to have weaponry that's going to slice right through the ship, right to the middle. And, And I've said this so many times, people keep thinking with their ape brain. That is, a ship is only as secure and and sturdy and powerful as your um, uh, your structural integrity fields and your deflectors and stuff like that. If you lose those things, it doesn't matter where in the ship you are. Plus, the other thing is to consider, and I don't think many people do, is that if something really catastrophic happened to the ship, as a matter of fact, I could tell you that the Enterprise NX was designed this way, the bridge set module can come off like a lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same with DS9, that little pill on top could come off, you know? Um, so I like it. I like it out there. I like seeing it. I like knowing where it is. I, I, you know, the idea yeah. of them, you know, it's like Gene always said, our, our, our people don't sneak around, you know? You don't bury them away. You put them out there and they hold their heads up high and they're, you know, we're Starfleet, goddammit. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you from yeah wanting to see it out there, and then I also see David's perspective of thinking it should be buried. It's um, won't help. It won't help. Ultimately, though, I think without the deflectors and and stuff like that, the ship is like butter. It's like taking a blowtorch to butter. Doesn't matter. Putting a berry (laughs) in. He's got to get that that twenty first century ape's brain out of here. Put the ape brain away. (laughs) Come into the future with us. Well, let me ask you one last thing related to production as we wrap up here. How do you see the future of these independent productions? You know, there's no Star Trek on television right now, but I feel confident that at some point in the future, CBS is going to either themselves produce or work with someone else to produce another Star Trek series. Do you think that, first of all, do you think that these productions like Star Trek Continues will find a wider acceptance amongst the fans as we shift more and more towards this on-demand web-based delivery for television, which is actually how I get almost all my television. Yeah, now. me too. And and also, do you think that when Star Trek does come back to television officially, do you think that's going to curtail no. the fan interest in things like continues? Nope. Nope. Because no one, the way, it's got to the point where no one is ever completely satisfied with what they do whether it's mm-hmm. a TV show or a movie or, or it's a fan show. To have many choices is much more appealing to people. They like to have lots of choices. Um, Paramount has never been able to give fans the original series back. 
So something like Star Trek Continues is like, you know, like mana from heaven. I mean, uh, it's a thrill to watch it. It's something, you know, I've been lucky. I've worked on all this Star Trek, and I've gotten Star Trek back and had hundreds of hours of Star Trek made. But as original fans, we never got back the one thing that we really wanted. That was the original series. So there's always going to be types of Star Trek that Paramount just isn't going to pull off or they won't get to it or... You know, to think that would they ever do the original series again? I mean, I doubt it. But fans will will continue to do it. You'll be able to go and visit that time and place that you know that you love so much. Um, I'll tell you that if I was Paramount and I had some say, there there's something going on here that guys you could take advantage of. You know, I mean, there's like reality mm-hmm. TV shows where you can take the three top three or four Star Trek fan films and pit them against one another and have a camera oh, crew there and get it all on film and do a show like that. And then you put all four shows on television or stream on the Internet and you vote. And whoever wins gets real money. Maybe they get, you know, uh, a million bucks from Paramount towards their next one. And then That's a cool idea. Paramount can start streaming this stuff. Yeah. Something like Star Trek Continues, Paramount should definitely jump on it. Yeah, I agree. Well, we will see where it goes. There's so much excitement out there with everyone in these series. And as for you, Doug, you already mentioned that you're very busy on the television show right now. What are you working on now? What do you have coming up? And where can people go to find out more about your work? Well, I mean, Facebook is always a good place to check in on me because I'm always putting stuff up there and I have a lot of uh, archives. You put a lot of stuff on Facebook. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a science fiction fan, a Galactica fan, a Star Trek fan, you know, come to my house. (laughs) I've got lots of stuff to look at. (laughs) But uh, uh, right now I'm working with uh, my dear friend Gary Hutzel, who is our visual effects supervisor, who I've known for a long time now and met on The Next Generation. And I ended up uh, doing... uh, CG models for him while I was in the art department uh, for um, for Deep Space Nine. And I remember, gee, Gary, that was fun. I hope we get to do that again. And he looked at me and he said, be careful what you wish for. And then a few years <laughs> later, on the very night I heard Enterprise was canceled, I went home and there was a message from Gary Hutzel. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to ask me to come to Galactica. And that's what it was. And we've been working together for a decade now and having a great time. What a great guy to work for. So we're working on Defiance, which is for sci-fi. And the first season was pretty good. It did well enough to be brought back. But I got to say, the second season really got some great, fun stuff happening in it and some big stuff. So I think, you know, you should check it out. There's some good characters that you could fall in love with there. And I think that's what it's about. Look, I like spaceships. And we do have some space stuff in in the show. But um, it's a post-apocalyptic thing that's very science fiction oriented, you know, not like Mad Max. Uh, and people should check it out. The second season starts up in uh, like June, I think. We're, we're starting to get mm-hmm. there, and the shows are looking really, really good. And we're working on some stuff right now that's exciting. As a matter of fact, the pedals to the metal, and we're all doing some huge stuff. But anyway, I don't want to blather away too much here because I can't seem to shut up. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, very cool. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, definitely everyone go and check out Doug's Facebook page because he puts so much stuff up over there. 
all the time. It's really, really great place. Well, Doug, thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today about continues and about Star Trek. And it's just always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. And it's always fun to talk to you. Well, I hope everyone really enjoyed hearing Doug talk about creating Star Trek as well as how he became a fan. If you have not seen Star Trek Continues yet, I really encourage you to go over to the website at StarTrekContinues.com and you can watch the first two episodes there, Pilgrim of Eternity and Lolani, as well as the vignettes that were produced before the full episodes were released. You're really going to be blown away by what they're doing over there. Great performances, great writing. You'll really feel like you're watching TOS. And these are stories that you've just never seen before. And again, I really appreciate Doug taking some time out. He's very, very busy right now, but it's always fun to talk to him about the show and and about the work and creative behind it. But this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. The Enterprise. Because if you break it down, you've got a flying saucer with rockets. It's everything that he was trying to avoid, but it's so much more than that. He found a way to make a flying saucer with rockets make sense. Earl Grey. Encounter at Farpoint. The alien ship is literally shooting at and killing colonists on the planet, and he's like... I haven't had my talk to talk with Beverly yet. The Ready Room. Star Trek continues. Even on just seeing a corridor wall, you'll see, like, there's just a slash of of red against the wall. <laughs> that That's a stylistic choice that they were making in, in that era. So Matt has a great eye while we're shooting a scene. The Orb. The Full MDS-9. It, it's a milestone in the Cliff Bowl directing of Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. Defiant marks the final non-appearance of Sirach Lofton in a Cliff Bowl directed episode. To the journey! Innocence Rewrite. We'll use a deflector dish to emit a tachyon beam, fire a few photon torpedoes, blow up the anomaly of the week, and then we'll just fly off into space like we do at the end of every week. Commentary, Trek Stars. Remembering Cliff Bull with Larry Nemechek. But the the thing about Cliff personally was, um, that I'll always remember and it comes through in this transcript, he's a pretty plain spoken guy. And he would call a spade a spade. And uh, how, how, what's your rating on this podcast? Are you pretty much up to... Uh... Warp 5. Prequel design. Or just, you know, for the sake of the actor, so they felt like in the design people, they felt like this was a real place that um, people would believe. And I, I just really appreciate that. Literary Treks. John Jackson Miller, Absent Enemies. And, and of course, the, the, you know, the larger thing about the whole phasing thing is it allowed me to tell a, a story that I think had a, a, a Star Trek feel to it, uh, you know, with regard to, uh, you know, the issue of war and peace. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from our website. So go grab some shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. Now, if you'd like to share your thoughts on today's show, on Doug's work on Star Trek, Star Trek Continues, anything you want to talk about, 
you can do that in several ways. You can go to our website at trek.afilm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose continuing mission, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.afilm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about Star Trek. If you're in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and you'll find us on Twitter under username trekfm, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek. If you'd like to find me, I'm also on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network here, you'll find me on Literary Treks with Matthew Rushing, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics. On The Orb, again with Matthew, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. And I have my own interview show, Matterstream. In addition, we have a big show called The Ready Room, which I host along with other hosts from all across the network and special guests, where every week we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series. So those are some of the shows we have for you. Go check them out, and I'm sure we have something for every Star Trek fan across those shows. Before I let you go, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, and that's Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks you'll find online. They have over 150,000 books on there right now, and they add hundreds of new books every single week. I've been an Audible customer myself for 14 years. I just couldn't get by without them. If you're not listening to audiobooks already, and you like podcasts, you are going to love audiobooks. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up, you can choose any book you want. And if after the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, you get to keep that book. So there's nothing to lose. But your support of Audible helps us keep all of our shows coming to you every week. So go check it out. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really appreciate Audible's support of Continuing Mission and the network. Thanks again for tuning in today, everyone, and join me again next time on this continuing mission, and let's see what's out there.